So as I said before, we're going to be in um, Esther, and I'm not going to finish all the way to the end, but I am going to wrap it up. We have learned, if you remember, that Esther is a book about God's providence. What do I mean by that? Providence is this. In layman's terms, it's God using His supreme power. In other words, the Bible tells us not a sparrow falls from the sky apart from His will, right? So God has supreme power over all things. God's providence is when He uses that supreme power in order to orchestrate all things in the world together for the good of His people and according to His purpose. That's what providence is. And when we've looked at Esther, what we have seen this morning is that God, it was no surprise that the enemy was going to come up with a scheme like he always does to try to attack and destroy God's people. It was no surprise to God. And yet, he from the very beginning of the story has been putting pieces in place so that when the time comes, he allows the enemy to reach a pinnacle, if you will, to his plan. To the point that the enemy thinks, I've got this. I have won. I have accomplished my purpose. I have defeated God. And then God comes in and turns the whole thing around so that it all works together for the good of His people and all according to His purpose. And that's providence. And we see it all throughout the Bible. For instance, you remember when Joseph's brother sold him into slavery into Egypt? We would have looked at that at the beginning, and I'm sure Joseph did, and, and his brothers too, and they probably looked at that and thought, well, the enemy has won. But that was not the case, because by the time you get to the end of the story, Joseph is Pharaoh, basically, over he's the king over Egypt, and then he looks at his brothers that sold him, and he says to them, what you meant for evil, God meant it for good to save a nation. In other words, God is always taking the enemy's plan and God is always turning it around and He puts every place. There are no coincidences. No matter what story you go to, you will see the providence of God from Genesis to Revelation and He is always working everything together for the good of His people and always according to His purpose. And we see that all throughout the book of Judges. We see it whenever he's, the enemy is continually trying to send troops in to destroy God's people, and yet God will always raise up a Savior, and God always raises up someone to deliver God's people. And this is the storyline even in our life. The enemy is coming in, he's always trying to destroy God's people, but He will raise up someone to, to help lead them and guide them and help teach them. And so one of the things that we see through Judges is that He always uses the enemy's own scheme against Him and He always turns the plan around on the enemy and humiliates them. For instance, you remember Gideon. You remember Gideon? Um, he, he had an army of thousands and God said, Ah, you got too many. And he, he narrowed that army down to 300 people against, uh, I can't even remember how big the army of the Midianites was, but the fact of the matter is, God whittled that thing down to the point that when Gideon and his little army gained the victory, the only thing anyone could say is, God, you're the true hero. 
And this is the same thing we see in Esther. When we get to Esther, yes, God used Esther and Mordecai, but at the end of the day, they did so very little. The only thing they're going to be able to say is, God, you are the true hero of the story. And that's exactly what we're going to see as we continue to go out through through Esther. And you remember Jesus said in Luke 24, I believe it is, He said that all of the Scriptures, the, the prophets, the books of Moses, the Psalms, everything about Scripture was all about Him, right? Whenever you read of the the saviors that popped up, the Gideons, the Samsons, or you, you look at the Davids, or you look at the Moses, or the Joshua, they were always pictures that pointed toward what Jesus was going to do in perfection and how He was going to save His people. And so whenever we get to Esther, this is no exception. We see a picture of the enemy's plan. We see a picture of God's salvation. And we see a picture of Him raising up heroes and messiahs, if you will, to save His people. So in Esther chapter 7, verse 1 through 6, if you have the outline that I gave you, you'll see this on here. But the first thing that I want to talk to you about is the enemy's scheme is finally exposed. What do I mean by that? Well, let me give you a little background. In Esther, Esther has become queen. Now, She was the least likely person. It had to have been God's providence that made her queen to begin with because she was a nobody. She was a Jew of all people. And yet, she, out of all the women of Persia, won the beauty contest and became the queen. And then at the same time, we see that Mordecai, her Esther's cousin, he hears a plot that the king is going to be killed. And you remember what happened? He tells Esther, Esther saves the king's life through Mordecai's um, word, and then Mordecai is not recognized for it. And we would have looked at that and we would have said, well, doggone it. Mordecai trying to do good and he gets nothing for it. But what we don't understand is that God knows exactly what he's doing. And so by the time we get to um, Mordecai um, hoping he would be recognized and he's not, the enemy gets promoted because of his wealth, because of his status, because of who he is. The enemy of the Jews, the Amalekite, the one that attacked Israel from the um, Red Sea going into the Promised Land and they came in from behind and they actually uh, started trying to kill the weakest and the slowest among them. And God told the Jews, when you get into the land where I'm going, where I'm going to send you, don't you ever forget what Amalek did to you. The Amalekites were, were God's enemies because they should have been God's children, they were people of Esau, but they followed Esau's heart of instead of repenting and doing like their brother Jacob did and trusting God and following God and desiring the blessing and the promise of God, they sought their own heart and and instead they wanted to kill their brother. The same thing Cain did to Abel, the same old antichrist spirit we see from Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation. And so we have this Haman, this Amalekite that rises up to power and Mordecai will not bow to him. You remember that? And it was not because of a God thing or a worship thing. He remembers what God said. You do not bow to these people. These are sworn enemies of God. These are sworn enemies of you, of of God's people. 
Mordecai refuses to bow. And what happens when you won't bow to the enemy? Oh, he don't like it. Oh, he gets mad. And he puts together this plan that he's going to kill Mordecai. But not just Mordecai, he's going to annihilate all the Jews. How does he do it? He goes to the king and he deceives the king and he uses the king's own law against him. Now think about what happened. He goes to the king and he says, Hey king, there's some people that do not follow your laws. There's some people that will not do what you tell them to do. They are a threat to your kingdom and they need to be destroyed. I've got the money. I will take care of it. Just let me put the law in place. The king never asked who the people are. The king never inquires about it at all. The only thing he says is the money is yours. If you're planning on doing this, you go and take care of it. Little does he know it's his own queen and her people. And so he uses the law. The law is going to demand that all of the Jews be killed in 12 months down the road. On this day, all the enemies will rise up and they will slaughter the Jews and they will take the plunder for themselves. And then, as you remember, Esther, Mordecai calls her to do something about it. You're the queen, but she's afraid. So she has to overcome her fear. And she overcomes her fear and she says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have Haman and the king for a feast. And when they come in, I'm going to ask the king and tell him what Haman's doing. But you remember what happened? When she held the first feast, she got scared. And she couldn't do it. And she said, the king said, Esther, what do you want? You ask anything of me up to half my kingdom, I'll do it for you. And she can't do it. She says, I'll tell you what I want. Y'all come back tomorrow and then I'll tell you what I want. So now here we are. Haman leaves this feast that the queen has invited only him and the king to. And he gets out there and he's got his chest poked out, but he looks and who does he see? Mordecai. And Mordecai still won't bow. And he gets so mad in his heart that he goes home, he tells his wife, he tells his counselors, and they say, here's what you do. You go and build gallows, this stake to impale him on. 75 feet tall so that everybody sees it. And you impale and you hang Mordecai on those gallows so that all the Jews know that they should bow to you. And so he decides he's going to do that. He's up all night building the gallows. And then the next morning, early in the morning, remember what happened? The king just so happened he can't sleep. And so what does he do? He says, hey, bring me the book of the record of memorial deeds. And it just so happens they bring him the book of where Mordecai had saved the king's life. And then just by coincidence, as they're reading it, the king says, what was ever done for Mordecai? And just by coincidence, he says... Well, nothing was ever done for him. He says, well, we got to do something for him right now. Who's in the court? And out of all the people, it just so happens that Haman is in the court. He's coming to ask the king to kill Mordecai. And whenever he goes in, they say, the king says, well, bring Haman in here right now. Haman comes in and the king says, Haman, what should the king do to the man that he wants to honor? And Haman thinks in his heart, well, who would the king like to honor more than me? 
And so he says, O king, here's what you do. You get the royal robes that you have worn. You get the crown that you have worn. You get the horse that you have been paraded on. And you put the man on on this horse and you let one of your royal uh, people lead him through the street saying, Thus shall it be to the man whom the king delights to honor. And basically what Mordecai is saying is, you make him your equal. Up to half your kingdom. And so, what does the king say? Okay, Haman, go get Mordecai and do this. And so, I mean, Haman, I'm sure his mind is just blown. And he goes out. Now, if I'd been Mordecai, I'm just going to tell you what I'd have done. I'd have said, and remember, Haman's supposed to go through the street shouting, shouting with all his might, this is what will happen to the man the king delights to honor in. And I would have been there like a little slower, a little slower, Haman. Uh, Excuse me, Haman, could you be just a little bit louder? But that's not what Mordecai does. And instead, when they get back, Mordecai goes back to the gate. He goes back to his service. He's the king's equal, basically. And yet, he humbles himself and goes back to his service at the king's gate. And then we get to... Haman goes home and he tells his wife and his counselors, this is what happened. And they said, listen, if God's doing this to Mordecai, um, you might as well forget it. You're going to fall. And Haman, he goes back to the feast. And this is where we're at in chapter 7, verse 1. So the king and Haman went into the feast with with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves... Men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he who has dared to do this? Remember, the scheme is being exposed. Verse 6. And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Now you think about this for a minute. Haman thought for several months that his plan had been accomplished. Because I want you to remind you of something. In Esther chapter 1 verse 19, the Bible tells us that any law that the Persians had put in place, it could not be revoked. In other words, what you have is a picture here of God's law. The law of God cannot be revoked. It is going to be accomplished. And so in Esther chapter 1 verse 19, we see that if it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed. You see that? Any law that came before can't be repealed. And so the enemy here is using the law of the king so that his plan, once it's set into law, it can't be repealed. It's going to be accomplished. We got a problem here. We have a serious problem. The law demands the death of all the Jews. And the law is going to have to be fulfilled. So we have a problem. Remember, Haman thinks that he's won here. But... 
His plan comes to light. And then what we see is that the enemy, Haman, is defeated. But even though the enemy is defeated, how many of you know there's still the problem of the law? Do you see that? And so yes, the enemy is defeated and we see a glimpse of that when um, we see Jesus on the cross because look with me in um, Esther chapter 7 verse um, 7 through 10. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. So picture this in your head. Haman is begging Queen Esther while the king's out trying to figure out what he's going to do. And then he says in verse 8, And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking. As Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, and the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence? In my own house? And as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbana, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king's life, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high or 75 feet tall. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abased. Now think about what just happened here. The enemy thought that he was going to destroy God's leader, Mordecai, God's people, on this wooden stick. But what he didn't know is he was setting himself up to be killed on that stick. And this is the picture of what we see take place on the cross of Jesus Christ. The enemy thought, I'm going to destroy the Messiah on the stick. But little did he know that in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 through 16, look at what this says right here. It says here that Christ canceled the record of debt. Now think about that. Here's, remember, the law demanded that we glorify God. We sinned and fell short of that. And the law demanded our death. We have a record of debt that we owe. And he says here that he canceled that record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands and he set it aside. How did he do it? He nailed it to the cross. In other words, when he gave his life, he paid the debt that you and I owed. Satan's only tool, the enemy's only tool that he has is God's law, the king's law against us. And whenever Satan hung Jesus on that cross, he thought, I have accomplished it, I have won, but little did he know what he actually did was hung himself on that cross. Because he took away the only power he had against God's people. The only power he has is the law says... You were supposed to live this way. You disobeyed an infinitely holy God. And you know how long it will take for you to pay for the record of debt? You know how long it will take you to satisfy the wrath of God against Him? But yet Jesus, through His blood, satisfied it completely with one sacrifice, one time, for all that would put their sin on Him. He says, He canceled the record of death that stood against us with His legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Go to verse 15 for me. And here's what He did. 
he disarmed the rulers and the authorities. He disarmed them. In other words, he took the enemy's weapon away from him. This is important, guys, because listen, when he paid the payment for the king's law, when he did that, he freed you from that law. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. In other words, there is nothing the enemy has against you. The enemy will come before God and the Bible says that he accuses us day and night before God. And every time for Christians, God says, Yeah, old G, you're right, Satan. Old G does this, and he does this, and he does this, and he does this. But you're forgetting one thing. His debt has been paid. And he is free. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him. And go to verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. Now there's more context to this, but here's the point. If you have been covered by the death and the blood of Jesus Christ, you have been set free from the old law. The old law that led to your sin, the old law that led to your death, it has nothing to hold you with. But here's the problem. Even though He disarmed the enemy and hung the enemy on the cross, the law is still trying to kill God's people. The law is still trying to kill you every day, is it not? Because how many times do you look at the law and you fall in guilt and you fall in shame and you fall in defeat? And here's the problem. we got to do something about the old law because if you don't do something about... First off, you've got to understand that the old law has been paid by the death of Jesus on the cross. The second thing you have to do is you have to listen to the new law. Look what happened in, in Esther chapter 8. On the day that King Ahasuerus gave to Esther, gave to Queen... On that day, I apologize, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman. So all that belonged to the enemy, it belongs to the hero. Same way with Jesus today. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told the king who Mordecai was to her. Verse 2, And the king took off his signet ring. This is his symbol of authority, okay? Anybody that has this has the, has the right to, to the king's law. And he takes off the signet ring which he had taken from Haman and he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. Because remember, the enemy has been defeated but there's still a problem. The law is still after the people of God. And so Esther steps up and she says here, she weeps and she pleads with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. And look at verse 4. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, this was his sign of approval, Esther rose and stood before the king and she said, If it pleases the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written... So we're getting a new law here, right? Because remember, the old law is still in place. The old law still demands the death of sinners. The enemy has been defeated and you have been set free from it, but it's still trying to claim your life. It's still trying to annihilate you. It's still trying to destroy you. So how do we fix it? Well, we need a new law. 
And so a new law comes in. Look what, it, look what it says here. Let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. Now here's the problem. The law is already in place. We can't revoke it. The law is going to have to be fulfilled. And so keep going with me, verse 6. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write, here's what you can do. You may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. So we're going to take a new law here that does away with the old law. Now keep going. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is in the month of Sivan, on the twenty-third day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews. Now skip down with me to verse 11. This is what the edict said. Saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city, here's what the new law allows, in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy to kill and to annihilate any force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. Now here's the thing you need to understand. Listen to me closely, please. There's a new law that just come in that says the king empowers you to defend yourself, to fight, to gather together, and you now are empowered by the king to overcome anybody and any enemy that comes against you. So the old law is still trying to kill you. The old law is still trying to tell you that you deserve death. But the new law says you can defend yourself. The new law says you can fight. The new law says you can win. The new law says the old law has no authority over your life. Now why is that important? Because like I said before, this is a picture of what God does for you in the salvation of Jesus Christ. Look at Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Look at what this says. There is therefore now no condemnation. In other words, the old law has nothing on you for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Look at verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Amen. The old law of God that demanded your death because you disobeyed the King, it's been paid for and you have been set free. That's what it means to be free. That's what it means that we are no longer under the law. It don't mean that the law is still not good and to be followed. We are to continue to follow the moral law. We are to continue not to lie and not to steal. But to not be under the law means it has no power to, to condemn you anymore. And that was the enemy's only weapon. And so I say to you this morning, guys, listen, for those of you that are in Christ Jesus and yet you're still 
a sinner. You're still fighting for your life. You're still, you're still seeing guilt and shame and you feel defeated. Do you not know that in Jesus Christ and your faith in Him, He set you free? There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Do you believe that? And then look what he says. It has, for, for God has done, because of His new law, what was the new law? The law of the Spirit of life. God has now given you a law that says you can fight. You are empowered. Now you can go to war with your enemies. Your enemies have no power over you. Because listen, but here's the thing, they have to choose to fight. They got two choices. They can sit there and go, we can't win. And they can wait and let the enemies attack. And if they do that, it's unbelief and they will be destroyed. Or they can believe that this new law gives me the power to fight my enemies. And I'm going to rise up and I'm going to go to war. And every time this enemy tries to attack me with the old law saying, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to annihilate you, I'm going to destroy you, I remember there's a new law that's been written. And that new law says, the Holy Spirit lives in me. And He opens my eyes and He gives me life and He empowers me to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So He says, for God has done what the law... The old law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Do you see that? The old law is weakened by the flesh. We can't accomplish what the old law says. But he says, He did it by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, and He condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus Christ. He paid for it. And He did it in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So here's the thing. Have you broken the law of God? <laughs> oh God, yes. Yeah, I've broken the law of God to the point that I know I deserve death. But the good news is this. Because of what Jesus has done and because of the new law that He has written, the righteous requirement of the old law is fulfilled in us. Guys, we do die. The old law does kill us. But the good news is... Our old life is buried in Jesus Christ. And now we're given a new life to follow Jesus and to walk in His ways. And it says here that that righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in the people who do not walk according to the flesh. In other words, you're not still just falling in defeat to the old law, but instead the, law, the new law, you're believing it. You're fighting. Think about this for a minute. The people in Esther, they got two choices. They can either not fight and they can either let the enemy come and destroy them and attack them or they can believe the new law. They can believe the power that the king has given them. And they can get up and they can fight. And this is the same thing that happens here. If you truly do believe that what Jesus has done has removed the condemnation from you for all that you've done, and if you truly do believe that the righteous requirement of that law is fulfilled in you because of what Jesus has done, then you do not walk according to the flesh, but you are in war and you're following this new law. You're still fighting. How many of you know it's a fight? Somebody ought to say, Amen, preacher. It's a fight. It's a fight. 
But you're in the fight. Why? Because you believe the new law. You believe the new law. And you are following the new law. Go to verse 5 with me. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, they set their mind on the things of the Spirit. Your mind needs to be set on the new law, not the old. Not the one that defeats you. Not the one that's trying to kill you and annihilate you. But the one that's giving you life. And he says here, go to verse 6 with me. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Think about it. If you set your mind on the old law, yes, you're going to die. You know why? Because you are a liar. You are a thief. You are an adulterer at heart. You are a blasphemer. You are a murderer. You are all the things that the law says and you deserve death. You set your mind on that, you are defeated. You're defeated. But if you set your mind on the new law, the law that says, I can fight, the law that says, I can win, the law that says, I am not condemned by that. I am walking in new life that Jesus Christ gave me. And if you do that, it is life and peace. Life and peace. Go to verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can't. Those who are in the flesh, they cannot please God. But then, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. In other words, if you don't have this Spirit in you that is leading you to fight your sin, that is leading you to follow Jesus Christ, then you don't belong to Him. That's the truth of it. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, listen, this old fleshly life, what you saw Lane Gallagher just do, Lane and any sin he has ever committed or ever will commit was buried in the death of Jesus Christ and it was paid for. So the body is dead because of sin. But the Spirit is life because of the righteousness that Jesus gives you in the new law. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. In other words, He's going to cause you to rise up and fight your sin. He's going to cause you to not just surrender to the enemy's plan, the enemy's scheme, but instead He turns it back on the enemy and He says to him, what charge can you bring against G? If I gave my only son for him to pay for this, what, can you, what will I not freely give him? Amen. Who can bring a charge against him? And what's the answer to that? No one. And so what power does the enemy have at that point? None whatsoever. So the new law defeats the old law and brings victory. Now, in chapter 8, verse 15 through 17, I'll go quickly through these. This is the joy and the victory. Look what happens in verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a golden crown, a great golden crown on his head, a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. So here we got a new king in town. This king that didn't get the honor while he was here, but instead now because of what has happened, 
He's honored and now He's set as the King's equal. Just like Jesus rose to sit at the right hand of the Father after He had humbled Himself and trusted the Lord all the way unto death. And then look what it says next. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. So the people of God are filled with joy. Do you know why? Listen, if you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning, and you're sitting here defeated this morning, can I tell you, you don't know the good news of what Jesus has done for you. Or you're not believing it. One of the two. If you know what Jesus has done for you, and you know that you deserve to die when you stand before God, You deserve to spend an eternity in hell. And I hear people say all the time, well, an eternity, that's just extreme. Can I tell you something? The greater the honor of the one you offended, the greater the offense. What do you deserve when you offend an infinitely holy God? You deserve an infinite offense, an infinite punishment. And so I tell you this morning, the people that spend an eternity in the lake of fire, in the eternity in hell, they deserve every single moment that they are there. And that would be you and I the same. But the good news is this. Jesus Christ has paid my price for me. And there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And that right there ought to make people sing and shout. And that's exactly what happens here. The king is brought out. The king is sitting on his royal throne and reigning. The one that saved the Jews is is put in the right place. And then the city shouts for joy. And then the Jews had light, gladness, and joy, and honor. If you're sitting here this morning and you don't have joy, you don't have light. Listen, I know the world is still dark. Don't you know that the law that demands their death is still in place? But they have hope. They have hope. The King has saved me. The King has given me authority to rise up and to gather together with other believers, and to fight together, and to fight against all enemies that rise against us. And this is exactly why we sing and we shout, and we come together and we help each other to fight, and we celebrate this victory together. And then look at verse 17. And in every province and in every city where the king's command and edict reached, or edict reached, There was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And look at this right here, I love this. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews. For the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. People ought to be able to see the work of God in your life. And they ought to see the fight in you. Not to go to war with people, to go to war with your sin. And they ought to see that there's something different about you. And it ought to lead them to want to be like you are. And so I prayed this morning. Here's the way that I would end this. The old law demands your death. 
It demands that you be destroyed. It demands that you be annihilated. That's what the old law demands. And it's right to demand it because you have offended an infinitely holy God. But there's a new law in town. And that new law says someone has rose up from the lower ranks and saved you. And now that He has saved you, He's he's written a new law. And this new law says, I'm going to empower you. I'm going to give you what you need to rise up and to fight. So I got two questions for you this morning. First and foremost, are you sitting there defeated in your sin? What sin is it that keeps rising up in you? What enemy is it that keeps coming up and keeps defeating you over and over and over again? Somebody should have said amen. Amen. What sin is it? Or what sins, plural, is it? I I got two questions to ask you about that. Do you not understand that you have been set free? Do you not understand that it no longer holds you and condemns you? And then the second question is, do you not understand the new law that's been written? The new law says you don't have to keep letting it have dominion over you. The new law says you can rise up and you can fight. And so if you continue to stay defeated and to stay down. And always you come back to the Lord and you say, Lord, I'm just too far gone. Anybody ever felt that way? I'm just too far gone. Can I tell you the only thing that is is your unbelief. And the only reason you're not resounding in joy and thankfulness and praise for the good news of Jesus Christ is because you don't believe that the old law has been defeated. And you don't believe that you have been set free from it. No condemnation. You will not stand before God and hear Him say, Guilty! No, instead He'll look at you and say, You have fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. Not because of what you did, but because of what Jesus did for you. And then you have a choice. You can either believe the new law, and you can get up, and you can fight or you can fall in unbelief and you can be annihilated by the old law. That's your choice. And I pray this morning that you look to the Lord Jesus Christ and you with all the Jews, you see the new law and you see what the Savior has done for you and you go out shouting and singing and you go out with the desire in you to rise up and fight and if you go home and read the rest of the book you're going to see they do rise up and they do fight. And in all the providences of Persia they defeat all of their enemies. And let me tell you something. You have the power in the Holy Spirit if you will walk in the Spirit and if you will listen to Him and if you will learn from Him. There is someone in you that God put there to convict you of the enemies within you. There is someone in you that is putting you to open your eyes to what it takes for you to follow the Lord Jesus. There is someone in you that wants to teach you how to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. There is someone in you that if you will turn to His sword, the sword of the Spirit, 
He gives you the weapon to kill. Swords ain't made for plowing fields. Swords are made for slaughter. And the Spirit's got a sword that if you will listen and you'll learn from it, you have the power to defeat every enemy in your life. So you can either continue to walk in condemnation because you don't believe, or you can know that, yes, I'm a sinner and I have broken God's law, but the reason I know I'm saved is because I'm in the fight. I'm in the fight. The choice is yours for how you respond to it this morning.